0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's President and CEO, and uh, it really is a pleasure for me to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. As I was saying to our speakers tonight, once again, an amazing tribute to the power of history and to their spectacular work, and um, also to everyone here tonight's fortitude, it's, um, it's great. That's what history buffs are made of, strong stuff. Tonight's program, Great Battles of the Civil War, Fredericksburg, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I would like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great generosity, which has made it possible for us to bring so many great historians and writers to this auditorium. There are a number of Chairman's Council members in the audience tonight, and I'd like to thank all of you for your support of this great institution, which really makes all the difference in the world to us. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question-and-answer session. We'll ask those of you who have questions to line up in the aisles to my left and to my right. We do that so that the speakers on the stage, as well as other audience members, and those who listen to our podcasts can hear your questions. Following the program, please do join us for a book signing with tonight's speakers, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are so very thrilled to welcome back John F. Marzalek to the New York Historical Society. Dr. Marzalek is the Giles Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at Mississippi State University and the executive director and managing editor of the Ulysses S. Grant Association, which has published 32 volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. He's the author or editor of numerous books, including Sherman, A Soldier's Passion for Order, which was a finalist for the Lincoln Prize, and most recently, Lincoln and the Military. In 2004, the Mississippi Historical Society presented him with its highest award, the BLC Wales Award for National Distinction in History. We are also so very pleased to welcome back James M. McPherson, the George Henry Davis, 1886 Professor of American History Emeritus at Princeton University and one of the country's preeminent Civil War scholars. Dr. McPherson is the best-selling author of numerous books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1989. He's a two-time winner of the Lincoln Prize for his books, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, and For Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. His most recent book is Embattled Rebel, Jefferson Davis as Commander-in-Chief, and his forthcoming book, The War That Forged a Nation, Why the Civil War Still Matters, will be available in the spring. Our moderator this evening is Harold Holzer, the Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society and chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. He's the author, co-author, or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era, and in 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal. He served as a content consultant to Steven Spielberg's film, Lincoln, and his book, The Civil War in 50 Objects, tells the story of the Civil War through the use of objects from our very own New York Historical Society collection. His most recent book, Lincoln and the Power of the Press, The War for Public Opinion, and his forthcoming book, President Lincoln Assassinated, the first-hand story of the murder, manhunt, trial, and mourning, will be available later this month. Before we begin, I'd like to ask as always that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage.
1: Well, good evening. Let me reiterate what our president said. You're an amazing bunch for showing up and ignoring the predictions which (laughs) suggested that we were having a cataclysmic blizzard. And I'm glad to welcome you here back on this stage to talk about um, the latest in the series you've supported so enthusiastically and terrific as always to be sharing the stage with my friends, John Marzalek and Jim McPherson, especially to talk about what may be the most, one of the most neglected battles in Civil War history. Dale Gregory, the head of public programs, vice president for public programs at the Met, was just saying in the green room, why, why isn't the Battle of Fredericksburg more famous? And we said, we'll take care of that tonight, but, there were reasons. So the Battle of Fredericksburg, December 1862, and this, as you see, is the, the town of Fredericksburg. You see the church steeples from across the river. Let's set the stage. Jim, tell us who the Confederate commander is, and and if you would, set the scene about this town. Why is it important?
2: Well, of course, the Confederate commander of the Army of Northern Virginia was Robert E. Lee. Uh, The Battle of Fredericksburg took place uh, two months after uh, the Battle of Antietam, Uh, and after the Battle of Antietam, uh, Lee had been forced to retreat to Virginia, uh, his army was in very poor shape uh, after that battle not only from the casualties that it had suffered but from an enormous amount of straggling uh, the army uh, was exhausted uh, it was out of supplies it was uh, out of uniform and lee had to reorganize the army uh, before he could undertake any other kind of campaign and As usual, General McClellan, commander of the Army of the Potomac, gave him plenty of time to reorganize his army. (laughs) In fact, so much time uh, that Lincoln finally got fed up and removed McClellan from command on November 7th uh, and appointed General Burnside, who didn't really want the command uh, as commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, John, in a moment, will talk about Burnside's plan of campaign. Uh, But uh, Burnside moved toward Fredericksburg, and Lee moved more quickly uh, to block uh, the Union advance on Fredericksburg. Fredericksburg is a a key strategic point. If you look at a map, it's exactly halfway between Washington and Richmond, and the two major forms of communication uh, between Washington and Richmond go right through Fredericksburg. Uh, The Telegraph Road, which is today's Route 1, uh, and the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad. Uh, So it's a key point uh, in the strategic operations of military campaigns in Virginia. And of course, uh, in the following, uh, 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 in 1864, Fredericksburg would again play a major role Uh, And in 1863, at the Battle of Chancellorsville, there was also the Second Battle of Fredericksburg. So it's one of the most fought-over areas of the entire Civil War uh, because of its uh, uh, crucial strategic uh, location. So it's not surprising that not only the Battle of Fredericksburg itself took place there, uh, but very close by, the Battle of Chancellorsville, and, of course, in 1864, the Battle of the Wilderness and the Battle of Spotsylvania. Uh, A number of years ago, the Park Service uh, put out a a little pamphlet on the four major battles that took place within a radius of 15 miles from Fredericksburg uh, and gave it the title Where 100,000 Fell. Uh, And that just gives you an idea of the crucial nature of that geographical feature uh, in Virginia.
1: Well, here we have Lee, of course, every inch the commanding figure and soldier. And here is his opponent, who is probably best known for inventing or at least becoming famous for that extravagant side whisker that you see, the pride of Providence, Rhode Island, Ambrose Burnside. So John, tell us about Burnside and his, he get, just sort of track him from when, he, from when he gets the command and what on earth he was thinking of doing in the winter <laughs> or as the winter nears.
3: I think Harold made a good point about the fact that Burnside is probably best known for the fact that he came up with this hair, (laughs) this Mm sideburns. I think it tells you something about his place in the Civil War when he's better known for his hair than he is for his uh, fighting. Now, Harold and I are very jealous of him, although he looks—he no, looks a lot like we do uh, without, on top, the sideburns. without the sideburns. That's, that's exactly—that's exactly right. But Burnside is uh, is an interesting fellow. He 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 is uh, ends up in uh, in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. But he is a veteran of the so-called old army. He's a graduate of West Point. Uh, he serves in the Union Army for a very long time, uh, serves in various places uh, all, over the, all over the country. And when the Civil War begins, uh, he gains some measure of fame by his command of the so-called Ninth Corps, an independent uh, unit. And he does some important things in, uh, in North Carolina. Uh, he then comes to Washington and his herald, Uh, said, or maybe Jim said, uh, because McClellan did not move as rapidly, shall we say, as uh, Lincoln would have hoped, Uh, it took a little bit of time on Lincoln's part, but he fired McClellan and he asked Burnside to take his place. Now, Burnside did not want to become commanding general of the Army of the Potomac because he saw himself that he really was not ready for the position. He didn't have any confidence in himself. And one can see some of the same things that happen uh, at uh, Fredericksburg happening at Antietam, the way he handles troops, et cetera. But basically, uh, what Burnside decides to do is he decides that he's not going to follow the so called tried try-and-true way that Union uh, generals tried to get to Richmond. He was going to move 40 miles east to Fredericksburg. And from there, he was going to launch his attack. And without giving away too much of the story, I think the story comes down to very slow.
1: Well, here's the... um and again, to both of you, the fact that it's, we're approaching the winter and bad weather does not impact on, on um, Burnside's decision to move, slow or not. It is an odd time to engage in a major battle December.
2: Well, I think uh, Burnside felt that he was under enormous pressure to do something. Uh, because McClellan had been fired for not doing anything, not doing <laughs> uh, and the weather, it, it, Burnside takes over on November 7th. Um, he uh, comes up with this idea of not using the Orange and Alexandria Railroad uh, to move toward Richmond as a supply basis, but to move to Fredericksburg, uh, where the supply situation would be better uh, if he could drive the Confederate south from there. Uh, and uh, he, he begins to move in the uh, third week of November. And he actually does steal a march on Lee at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee doesn't know uh, exactly where the Union Army has gone. It takes him a while to figure that out. Uh, and Burnside t- turns up at Falmouth, Virginia, across the river from uh, Fredericksburg. Uh, and then comes the problem of getting across that river.
1: Which you all see back here. Tell us about the crossing, John. What was the idea? Well, of course, to get to the other side, obviously. But
2: <laughs> yeah, why does the chicken cross the road? Yeah, right it's, it's, <laughs> <is> the,
1: <laughs> but this is this is uh, the in the New York Historical Society collection. This is the famous. Uh, this is the print from the famous Lewis Prang uh, series of post-war chromolithographs that were meant to honor Union service and service men. Not too much heroic about Fredericksburg, as you learn, but for the veterans of Fredericksburg, this crossing is pretty interesting.
3: Yeah, the the idea was, of course, the the river is about, I think it's about 400 yards wide at that particular point, and it's deep enough where uh, Burnside is that you can't very well walk across, although there's a lot of debate that he could have, uh, he could have, when he first got there, there were some fords available that he might have gotten across, but that's a, whole, that's a whole other story. But the idea was that he was going to set up some a pontoon bridge, several pontoon bridges, actually. And he actually got a couple of them done because they were not in the direct uh, line of fire. But the idea was you, you, you get across this river by setting up these uh, these uh, pontoons. So the Union troops start building the pontoons. Well, first of all, Uh, They're late in coming. That is a problem. The pontoons are late in coming because the orders to send them to this area are confused. And as one historian mentions, the word rush is somehow left out of the order of getting the pontoons there. But anyway, they start, when the pontoons arrive, they start hooking them together to cross the river. Well, there's a problem. There are some Confederate soldiers. Led by, I should point out to Harold, by a Mississippian named Barksdale, who, by the way, his relatives are very big in education and reading. They they fund a lot of uh, a lot of these things. But anyway, they're in they're in Fredericksburg and they start shooting at. The Union soldiers building the pontoon.
1: You see the pups of smoke. And, yeah, right. And
3: you, yeah, well, that's and right.
1: Somebody is dead in the foreground.
3: Right, and so you, you know, you they're they they're shooting him. It's very difficult to put any do anything when you're being uh, when you're being shot at, and so one of the things that happens, of course, uh, uh, Burnside sends uh, his artillery firing into. Uh, into Fredericksburg. But the problem is, as we, as we learned during the war, rubble is the best defense that you can have. So the rubble that they have works. And so finally what does happen is some of the, some of the uh, uh, soldiers are sent in these pontoons, in these boats, and they paddle across the river and they do drive the, uh, the Confederates away, and then they're able to, to complete the, uh, the pontoon bridge.
1: Jim, who, who, who controls the town after this crossing? Uh,
2: I'll get to that in a minute. Let me back up a minute and, and, and make one observation about the pontoon problem, because that became uh, kind of a key to uh, some of the criticism of the Union strategy in this campaign. Uh, back in uh, November, when Burnside presented his plan to Lincoln and to General Henry W. Halleck, who was the general-in-chief. Lincoln was initially skeptical, but he eventually approved of it. Halleck, as I understand it, believed that rather than crossing at Fredericksburg on the pontoons, Burnside was going to use these fords upriver. Uh, And that's why they did not put the rush in the order for the pontoons. Instead of using those fords, Burnside moves down to the deep part of the river and wants to cross on pontoons. Um, Your question now uh, that I was supposed to answer Who controls
1: the town? (laughs) Who controls the the (laughs) crossing? John's point about the rubble is fascinating. Yeah, that's. The fortification. Yeah,
2: Yeah, when when the artillery didn't succeed in in driving out the Mississippi Brigade that was taking pot shots at these engineers trying to build the pontoon bridge. Two, three regiments, uh, the Seventh Michigan and the Nineteenth and Twentieth Massachusetts, clambered aboard these uh, pontoons, which are really just boats, boats yeah. uh, and uh, rowed across the river and drove them away. In one of the few examples in the Civil War of urban street-to-street fighting, <laughs> this happens on December 11th, uh, when and they drive them away, and that makes it possible. For the uh, uh, rest of the Union Army to cross uh, during the day on December 12th, and one of the first things that they do after driving the Mississippians out of the town of Fredericksburg is trash the town. Uh, of course, it was a this is a time-honored kind of thing that soldiers do. They capture a town and then they take it apart, uh, and that's what they did in Fredericksburg.
1: Because there's a lot of visual literature, if you'll allow me the phrase, of people, women and children, sitting in completely destroyed homes with rubble around them and in rags, the victims of um, looting, et cetera. Right. And it took
2: place. It did take place. It it was not a happy uh, happy incident. Lee had decided not to contest the crossing in a serious way. Uh, He did harass the crossing. The Mississippians harassed the union trying to get across, but... Lee decided to make his defense on the high ground back from a mile or so from the river itself, where there's a string of ridges and hills, high ground, that the Confederates uh, um, uh, set up. They had 75,000 men, one of the largest armies Lee ever commanded. He had been able to reorganize and enlarge the army in the two months since Antietam. Uh, And so they waited for the Union attack on the high ground, Marie's Heights right behind Fredericksburg itself, and then three miles to the south, a series of hills, including Prospect Hill, where Jackson was set up to to defend against an effort to attack that segment of the line. The Confederate line was actually seven miles long uh, from the river above Fredericksburg until uh, all the way down almost to uh, the... the, um, uh, the river below Fredericksburg, where the railroad crossing, so he had seventy five thousand men to defend this seven mile line. so he
1: moves in back of the the skyline we see in back of it, yeah,
2: back to the skyline that you see yeah, on, right. on uh, this beyond the town.
1: right I think you see some hint of the ridges there, yeah well, and you uh, we wanted to ask you about much more about Halleck as the biographer of Halleck, if you think it 's worth mentioning. he's dubious
3: too, right. Uh, well, Halleck is... And Lincoln is due. Lincoln, Halleck, and Lincoln. Halleck and Lincoln actually meet uh, with Burnside, and they know his plan. Um, and they're not sure. But I think the important thing to to consider is that though they may not be sure about the the, the validity of the plan, they really don't tell Burnside to do anything else. They basically say, well... You know, you're our general. You're going to you're going to have to do this or not do this as you think. But I was just thinking what what Jim said too. If you know, if you like what ifs, this is a great what if. If Burnside had started his movement, not waited for the pontoons, used those fords, got across the river, and gotten a beachhead before the Michigan and other regiments finally. Uh, finally did it, uh, things might have been different. when You consider that uh, until a day before the battle begins, I think it is, uh, Stonewall Jackson is in the Shenandoah Valley, so he's not even there. He's, Lee has to bring him forward. Lee gets to Frederick's book a day after Burnside gets there. So there's a lot of, of possibilities, and again, I, I used to tell my students, you know, what ifs don't count? Because no matter what you say, you're right. <laughs> you can only go on what happened. And what happened was Burnside did not move, and the pontoons and all of this took place.
1: just strikes me, in the absence of our mutual friend Craig Simons, that this is sort of a mini D-Day. I mean, they are yeah. going across the water in their boats, and there's, there's a fire. Of course, the fire was more serious yeah. from the beach in uh, in France, but well, here they... they the enemy, quote-unquote, or the, the opposition occupies the high ground, it's it, sort of a, without huge numbers and without continuous assault and without some surprise, it's not going to succeed too well.
3: Well, I was just thinking, and Jim might, would probably know whether I'm right or not on this, but isn't this the first example of what you might call amphibious sort of a, a, an assault? I mean, you could argue, you know, when does the battle battle begin? Right. But they get there, and they do have a beachhead.
2: Yeah. I think it is in the Civil War. I can't think of anything that uh, preceded it uh, of that sort, crossing a river in the face of a uh, heavy fire.
1: Um, I mean, there is the irony of the fact that if you go a few miles away, you can just walk across. But (laughs) still, this is very showy effort uh, by the Union. And there are about 130, you said 75,000 Confederate, but... More, more, union. more Union, 120,000.
2: Yeah. 100, oh, 110,000 or so. Yeah, I mean, there are two large armies here. They're they're is yeah. larger than they usually were when they met each other during in fact, the fact, I was going
3: to ask you again, isn't this the biggest, um, the most number of uh, soldiers on both sides in any battle in the Civil War? I think so, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you've got that. Because of, Grant
2: had about the same number in the wilderness campaign, but Lee had fewer. Yeah, he had right. 60,000. Right. So
1: more soldiers are engaged here than in Gettysburg.
2: Uh, Yes, Yes. except engaged may not be quite the right word, because one of the key aspects of the Battle of Fredericksburg is that some 40,000 of the Union soldiers never fired a shot in anger.
1: So the Union, I mean, I'm struck by this quote of General Longstreet's, which he wrote years later, that this assault was up the heights, Mm -hmm. was desperate and bloody and utterly useless. So let's talk about this, because it's the most famous part of the Battle of Fredericksburg, except perhaps for the aftermath, which we'll get to. So Marie's Heights and other heights, and uh, for those of you who know Mary Washington College, is Mm -hmm. that the name? It is the site today of the house of the president of Mary Washington College, who takes great pride in having it sounds almost. Uh, they actually call religious.
2: themselves a university now, by the way. Oh, okay, good.
1: <laughs> but they do have cocktail parties on the room. <laughs> and I invite you to look down and see how utterly useless this assault must have been without bazookas and, and tanks. So the Union gym is organized in what are called, the Union forces organized in grand divisions. Tell us what that means and what they expect it to accomplish.
2: Well, on the eve of the Battle of Fredericksburg, when um, Burnside took over, uh, the Union Army consisted of seven army corps, infantry corps. Uh, one of them got left behind in Washington in this campaign, the 11th Corps, uh, but Burnside thought that was an unwieldy situation to have six different corps commanders reporting directly to him. So he reorganized the 6th Corps into three grand visions of two corps each uh, and put uh, Edwin Vose Sumner Uh, the Senior Corps Commander, in command of the right Grand Division, Joe Hooker in command of the Central Grand Division, and then William B. Franklin in command of the left Grand Division. Uh, So that he had only three subordinates reporting directly to him. He thought that this was going to be a a more efficient way of carrying on command. It didn't turn out that way. Uh, And after Burnside uh, was replaced in January, uh, Hooker reverted to the old corps system and the Union Army was uh, organized in, in the Army of the Potomac in the corps system for the rest of the war.
1: I just want to segue, because you mentioned one of my favorite figures of the war. I may be the only person who feels this way, but Edwin Vose Sumner was one of the uh, military men who guarded Abraham Lincoln on his inaugural journey from Springfield to Washington. Lincoln found out that his nickname was Bullhead and that nickname was earned, um, I think it was during the Mexican War, when a bullet apparently hit him in the head and bounced off. <laughs> and Lincoln clearly thought this was a good man to walk right in front of him at <laughs> all the stops and the inaugural journey. So here he is now at Fredericksburg. But um, tell us about, both of you, about what happens in this first engagement. You've got Franklin, General Franklin, and you've got Stonewall Jackson here in the, in the, on the Confederate side.
3: Well, the interesting thing, and I, I, I want to give Jim a chance to talk about uh, about Franklin, but uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson—it it, it struck me uh, about this whole thing. Stonewall Jackson commands the area of this battle where the Union troops almost break through; they come very close to breaking through, up going up, going up. But they're—they're not—they're not right at Mary's Hill. They're off—they're off to the side, but. And the difficulty, and uh, Jim will want to talk about this, is that Franklin's role in all of does not really support uh, doesn't doesn't really support Meade uh, in this in this particular particular time. But the point I'm trying to make, I think, is that you know we we have a lot of talk about geez, If 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 Stonewall had only been alive during Gettysburg, it would have been a different situation. But that's indicating, I think, that Stonewall Jackson never made any mistakes. There are numerous examples, and I think this is one of them, where he really wasn't as prepared as he should have been uh, for this attack, uh, for this attack that, was, that was coming. And, again, if you like what-ifs, what if Meade's division had been supported and broken through? this would have been a a totally different result. But I want to give Jim a chance to talk about Franklin, yeah.
1: I don't know if these maps are helpful. Last time we we, um, did a program here, I was told everyone loves the maps. I find them completely incomprehensible. (laughs) The one I had up before was December 10th. Oh, that one, yeah. We're past that. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good map, So Jim, Franklin against Jackson.
2: Um, Okay, Uh, Let me say a little bit about William B. Franklin. Uh, Lincoln had once called Franklin one of McClellan's pets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Franklin and Fitz John Porter uh, were the two uh, corps commanders under McClellan uh, to whom he was closest, McClellan. Uh, I think Franklin was the real goat of Fredericksburg, uh, just as he had been two months earlier Uh, the GOAT of uh, Crampton's Gap. One of his tasks in the Antietam campaign was to break through at Crampton's Gap on September 14th to rescue the Union garrison at Harper's Ferry, which was under siege from Jackson. Uh, And he moved slowly. Uh, He didn't even want to make the attack there against a very thinly uh, defended position, Uh, a strong geographical position, but uh, thinly defended by the Confederates. It was one of his brigade commanders who really took the initiative to uh, launch the attack at Crampton's Gap, and then when they drove the Confederates away there, Franklin decided, well, we'll wait till tomorrow to try to rescue Harper's Ferry, and of course, it was captured the next morning. Uh, well, he's sort of the same way here. Even He had graduated number one in his West Point class, by the way, and that may have been his problem. I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, in any case, he's in command of the Left Grand Division, and you'll see his name uh, right there on the river, Franklin. Uh, and those other names there are uh, either uh, um, a Corps Commander, Sixth Corps W.F. Smith, or Division Commanders, Gibbon, Meade, Doubleday, and Reynolds. Um, ja- uh, uh, John was talking about uh, Jackson's mistake here Jackson is holding this position down here, uh, and the division, uh, the brigade commanded by Maxie Gregg, uh, was a fairly small and and weak division. Uh, Jackson decided that that area probably didn't need a strong defense because it's it's, uh, wetlands. You can see the branch of a stream going through there. And General Meade, at this stage of his career, commanding a division of about 5,000 men, uh, actually attacks along through this wetlands and breaks through and calls for support. And that's that long arrow. You know. That's that long arrow. Going over the railroad. Uh, now, Jackson has men in reserve under Jubal Early primarily and, and Lawton as well. And they quickly close the gap because <coughs> nobody is supporting Meade. Meade sends back desperate please, you know... Uh, Give us some support here. We've what broken does he troops. want the other men to move up in
1: back of him and move up the
2: hill? Well, to come and support him and, and exploit this breakthrough right. by sending in more troops because the Confederates are counterattacking, uh, and Meade is all alone there. He does have some support on his right from Gibbon, but Gibbon is busy with these other uh, Confederate brigades, Pender, Thomas, and Lane, and so he can't, he can't help Meade very much, and Franklin doesn't do anything.
1: Uh, Judging from the arrow that looks like a fish hook, it looks like he turned around.
2: Well, Meade is driven out. Uh, Then uh, this is all happening in in, uh, the um, early afternoon. Uh, As the afternoon wears on and as the bloodbath is going on back up at Fredericksburg on Maurice Heights, Burnside sends Franklin repeated orders to... To do something down here, to attack, to take the pressure off the Confederates, uh, off the uh, Union forces attacking Marie Heights. Franklin doesn't do anything. Um, We have Lincoln. Lincoln. Lincoln learns about this. Lincoln is already disillusioned with Franklin, uh, and because Franklin is also behind an effort to get McClellan restored to command. And Lincoln knows about that. Uh, And so when Burnside is finally relieved of command in January, so is Franklin. And he's sent out to Louisiana, about as far away from Washington as Lincoln can get him, uh, where he spends the rest of the war doing nothing, basically.
1: And Meade sends out this desperate communique, which I love. My God, General Reynolds, did they think my division could whip Lee's entire army?
2: Exactly. Exactly. So...
1: We have the, I think we've got the strategy, and this map is helpful, and now that you've parsed it, both parsed it. Um, there's also the, 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 the carnage, the, the human cost here, and, and these, these quotes that I've tried to pluck out that tell the story. Um, Longstreet, who says that the battle, the union just kept charging up the hill when one, group fell, another group would come forward and keep going up these impregnable, well-fortified heights. And Longstreet's most harrowing quote is, I think, not only about the desperate courage, but he says that soon the ground at the bottom was so thickly strewn with the dead that they impeded the approach of more Federals. They just couldn't get past their own... their own. Um, um, Fallen. Fallen. Yeah. So <coughs> there is no other way to do this, right? I mean it just keeps they just keep coming.
3: Well this is this is the this is one of the major issues, I think, of of this of this battle. Uh Burnsides order something like I think it's fourteen attacks. And it, it's a it's a good example of doing the same thing even though it's not working, but you continue uh, you continue doing the, the same thing. And uh, I said earlier that it struck me that um, at Antietam, uh, the famous Burnside Bridge, something similar happened where, where Burnside is, is supposed to attack in that particular area. But again, it is possible to, to, to the ford the creek there. But he continues to funnel his troops across that bridge and keeps fighting, and it's and it and it turns out to be uh, turns out to be a disaster there, as I think it's a uh, it's a disaster here. But I, I just I think one of the things that's, that's most striking about this battle, to me, and I think the uh, uh, Gettysburg uh, Pickett's Charge is why would human beings continue to attack this way? Consistently, You know, it got so bad at this battle that as troops were moving forward, people that had been shot on the ground were grabbing at their, at their legs and grabbing at their pants saying, don't keep going. It's a, it's a slaughter, and what's called but the slaughter the slaughter pen. But you do wonder, why would the Confederates keep attacking at, uh, at uh, Gettysburg? Why would the Union troops keep attacking here at Fredericksburg? when it it, it seems obvious that this is not going to work.
2: I think key to understanding that battle is that Franklin did not reinforce success and Burnside kept trying to reinforce failure. Mm. Uh, And and that's just the opposite of what a successful commander is supposed to do. Right, that's a good point, good point.
1: Well, here's a good quote. The Battle of Fredericksburg pitted great valor in the Union ranks and mismanagement by their commanders against stout fighting and effective generalship on the Confederate side. It's a good summary. Do you know who wrote that? You did. (laughs) That's from Battle Cry.
2: Yes, I remember it. Did you remember?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's modest to say. So the aftermath is, uh, I have the statistics, 1,300 Union killed, 9,600 wounded, 1,700 missing or captured, so the total is about 12,600. Confederates only, quote-unquote, lose 608 killed, 4,100 wounded, so it's more like 5,000 total. That's one of the most lopsided casualties. It is. It's the
2: most lopsided casualty ratio of the entire Mm -hmm. war, I think, in any major battle.
1: And then the ground freezes. They have a big cold snap and bodies they say are frozen in grotesque positions and have to be pickaxed away from the ground by the burial parties so it and are, are these stories getting through to the rest of the north
3: Oh yeah i mean there, there are there are there are terrible stories uh, about you know some of the things you were talking about some other things and it, yeah people do do know about lincoln uh what makes the comment about this is like being in hell. No, if
2: there's a worse place than hell, I, I'm, I'm in, in it. it.
3: That's right. If it's a worse place than hell, I'm I'm in it. Uh, it it's it's an interesting point. Uh, George Rabel has written I think you know, the best book. I think God that's it,
1: Curtin, right. by the way, who hears that? phrase, Curtin visits Lincoln and hears him say. Yeah.
3: Yes, he's there's a the worse place Lincoln than hell. So hard. I mean it. Yeah, yeah he's never saw, Curtin, saw the Harper. governor of Pennsylvania. Yeah. No, they're saying George Rabel's written the book, uh, which you joke about, but it's called Fredericksburg, exclamation point, Fredericksburg, exclamation point. And he makes the point that, yes, the, this really affected the North a, a, a great deal, but he argues that what happened was it did not destroy the patriotism of the federal troops. A new kind of patriotism developed, a a determination uh, to continue doing what had to be done to to end this uh, this particular war. So it's, it's a good question. The other issue is, of course, did this lopsided victory encourage the Confederacy? Some people argue yes, it encouraged Robert E. Lee to Chancellorsville, and then, of course, to, uh, uh, pardon me, to, get, to uh, Gettysburg. So it, it's an interesting, interesting question, how these battles develop. And it, it struck me just the figures that, um, that Harold gave. Uh, consider, you know, just 600 people were killed on the Confederate side. That tells you, I think, something about how horrible this war was. I mean, it got to the point where the Confederates started out with too deep on top of Mary's Hill, uh, Mary's Heights, and near the end, they had four deep firing down on these, on these soldiers, and one of the things we haven't even talked about, we've talked about the heights, but the fact of the stone wall and the so- sunken road, which the Confederates had dug out even more, so the, the Union soldiers have to get over this fence down into this right. area and then up, so it is, it's a, it's, it's a horrible sort of thing and to think with that advantage, 600 Confederates are killed too, which I think shows you how horrible uh, this war is.
1: My my takeaway from Fredericksburg has always been how extraordinary that Lincoln was able to stay Mm -hmm. after the immediate horror of what he learned and saying if there's a worse place than hell, I am in it. Remember, he issues the Emancipation preliminary in September. In November, his party suffers a lot of setbacks in the off-year election, loses governorships, mm-hmm. House seats, state legislatures, New York goes Democratic, for example. And then he's, he's announced January 1st as the deadline, but this is the intervening Yes, net. yes. I wonder how many people thought, I mean, Senator Chandler says the president is weak, the governors are fools. I wonder how many people suspected Jim, you might want to weigh in on this too, whether the emancipation could be the final proclamation could actually be signed on January 1st when the president was now operating out of military weakness, not strength.
2: Well, a lot of people speculated that he would not issue it on January 1st uh, for those very reasons. Uh, Another thing is, of course, the um, cabinet crisis that took place just four or five days after Fredericksburg when uh, the Republicans in the Senate tried to force Lincoln to fire Seward and reorganize his cabinet, and Lincoln faced them down uh, but that is another sign of just how how weak he, he was at the time. Yeah. He managed to succeed in, in fending off the attempt by the Senate to force him to do what he did not want to do. Uh, but Lincoln, I think, um, never wavered in his determination to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And he told Senator Sumner, who went to see him just two or three days before January 1st, Uh, that he would not retract the proclamation if he could, and he could not if he would. Right. (laughs) So Sumner was uh, gratified. uh, But I'm sure uh, it was
1: a hellish run-up to Christmas. It was a
2: hellish run-up. Not only that, uh, he was facing a problem with the command problem within the Army of the Potomac at the very same time. Uh, Burnside had come up with another uh, uh, plan, and a couple of generals went behind Burnside's back and, and went to Washington. And complained uh, uh, to Lincoln about Burnside's new plan and how it would lead to another disaster and Lincoln had to, he called Burnside to Washington Burnside was there on New Year's Day uh, he was dealing with this crisis in command at the same time so Lincoln was facing multiple problems all yeah. in the surrounding uh, the the time of the emancipation proclamation and uh, and, and most of them really were a consequence of what happened in Fredericksburg. Please, please
1: before John, yeah. I, I want to just give everyone an alert to please come and line up at the mics if you have questions. We'll have some time for questions, and John, I'm sorry to interrupt. No,
3: I, I was going to say, and uh, to add to what Jim said, uh, the other issue is Halleck. Lincoln says to Halleck, take a look at Burnside's plan. Tell me if you think it's a good plan or it's a bad plan, and Halleck refuses. He said, I take the position that commanders in the field know better than those of us who are in Washington or whatever. Uh, and so he refuses to give any advice to Burnside. Burnside. asks him for advice, and we will not, will not give him uh, any advice because he believes so firmly that he shouldn't interfere. Well, the result is that all those things that Jim said, this happening... And somehow the Mud March, the famous attempt by uh, Burnside to, to really uh, fight a, a battle in, in the winter, starts out and nobody tells Burnside, wait a minute, don't do that. It's muddy
1: out there. It's <laughs> muddy out
3: there. That's right.
1: And just to t- tell, us, tell everybody what the Mud March is, because it's so grotesque in yeah, following the, the battle.
3: Yeah, the Mud March is, is Burnside's new attempt. He's going to try to flank uh, Lee's army. But the difficulty is, it's been a lot of rain in January there, in, in, in that part of Virginia, and he get, literally gets stuck. His artillery units, his soldiers get stuck. I mean, their, their, their boots are sucked into the mud, and he has to turn around. It's an incredible embarrassment. He's the laughingstock. If you read
1: the press accounts, as I did for my yeah. press book, of re- reactions to the battle, Dismay. Uh, but the reactions to the mud march are discussed, mm-hmm. that the soldiers were, were subjected to that horror. We'll let, we have some questions lined up, so let's state your name and tell us your first. What's your question? Uh, my name is Phil Simmons,
3: and uh, I'm fascinated by the, the 14 assaults
4: that seem like such a bad idea now. W- why do you suppose Burnside found that a good idea, and when did that become a lesson learned, and are there examples of people
3: later on saying, well, that's a bad idea, we shouldn't do what Burnside did? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you want, you want?
2: Uh, Well, I, I think they never did learn that lesson in the Civil War. <laughs> uh, assaults like that, frontal assaults, uh, continued to be a feature of several battles. Uh, we were talking about George Rabel's book a little while ago, uh, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg. Well, he got that title from what the uh, Union soldiers at Gettysburg did, pumping their fists after they had repulsed Pickett's charge. It's Fredericksburg in reverse. Uh, And there are a good many other examples that uh, Grant's uh, repeated assaults at Spotsylvania in 1864. Uh, So uh, while uh, Burnside's repeated assaults on Rees Heights at Fredericksburg may be the most egregious example of uh, of, of reinforcing failure, repeated attacks that aren't going to work. Uh, it's, it's not unique in the Civil War. Uh, it continued. And of course, uh, we're right in the middle of the centennial of World War I. Think about the Somme. Think about Verdun. Think about you know, Passchendaele. Uh, they were still doing it then. Yeah.
3: Well, one of the interesting things about all this is, too, is that later in the war, uh, General Sherman takes the position that he doesn't want to do this sort of thing. He doesn't want to have these frontal attacks, these mass casualties. And so he comes up with this concept of a destructive war, of trying to, you know, march to the sea and through the Carolinas. Now, that's not to say that wasn't done before, because it's been done throughout, uh, throughout history, these kinds of things. But in this particular case, I think Sherman was really influenced by the futility of, of what, he, what he saw happening.
1: You managed to get Sherman into the
3: association. I, did. I had a good. wager with. I haven't people. said Grand Association. <laughs> Not yet. Well, Not yet, Louise. It's, it's, it's early.
4: Yeah. Yes, uh, Gerald Walpen, uh, I, I have to congratulate you for painting the picture of what appears to me to be a total lack of planning and foresight to meet the hazards of attack there. But when the, the first old picture, which I assume was a contemporary painting of uh, Fredericksburg,
1: The first one was actually a period photograph, as I remember. Was
4: it a photo? Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, If you notice in the middle there, there are three or four, I guess, three concrete feet in the river, which would appear to be for a bridge. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, therefore, what was that? What happened to what was the reason for it? And as an ancillary question, what did people do at that time before this battle about crossing that river?
2: Well, that's the, the, those are the piers for the railroad bridge. Railroad, bridge, And it was destroyed by the Confederates when they had left Confed- uh, Fredericksburg earlier uh, to, to deny its use to the Union forces. Uh, and so the only way you can get across the river is to take a boat across it, or if you go several miles upriver, uh, to go across at the fords. Uh, Fredericksburg is right on the fall line. Mm-hmm. Uh, below that is, is deep river water, tidal, the tide water of Virginia. Above it are rapids uh, and the and shallow river. Uh, uh, Fredericksburg, uh, like Richmond, like Trenton, New Jersey, that's right on the fall line of the East Coast.
1: But thanks for bringing us back to this picture because yeah. it's so but, vivid.
3: And I think the river thing is, is really interesting. Because that's one of the differences between the war in the east and the war in the west. The rivers in Virginia are blocking the Union advance. You've got to cross those rivers. The rivers in the west are daggers into the heart of the of the Confederacy. So, and, they're, a,
2: nav- and they're navigable and all they're the navigable, way. Yes. On, unlike here, that's above the fall line, exactly. Not the navigable. fall
3: line. So, so you do have. You do. So that's a good good uh, idea that you pointed out.
2: I'm Jim Pocinich.
1: I'm a docent here. Um, you talked earlier about how artillery softened up
4: and destroyed Fredericksburg. Couldn't Burnside have used that artillery to attack Mary's height and, and sort of make the attacks Good on question. Mary's height a little bit easier?
2: Well, he did use yeah. artillery, uh, but the Confederates were dug in. Uh, the, the, um, uh, where Jackson was, if you want to go back to the, uh, that uh, they they uh, have a tree line there that they can they can put their infantry behind the tree line uh, at Fredericksburg itself. They're dug in on Marie's Heights, uh, but there was an artillery duel. The artillery was relatively ineffective in in breaching the Confederate defensive line on the heights, but they tried. It, it just didn't. It, it was not that successful. Thank you. And
3: the famous, uh, Harold's been giving us a number of important quotes, but the famous quote when uh, Longstreet went to Porter Alexander and said, uh, I got a couple more uh, artillery pieces here we can put in. And uh, Porter Alexander, who was the artillery guy, said, General, the way we are set up, we don't need those. We don't need those extra extra guns. Uh, Because right now, the way we're set up, we can hit every area where the Union would be coming. In fact, a chicken couldn't walk across that area and come out alive.
1: So now you have the artillery story from
3: both sides. Both sides, yeah. Yes.
2: Uh, Nathan Burkhan. My impression is that there was an order issued by Burnside, or one of his aides, uh, that was delivered to Franklin that was somewhat confusing. I think it said, in part, uh, occupy uh, the hill, whatever the hill was that was to be uh, occupied, prospect er, Hill. Right, prospect, yes, prospect Hill. Prospect And this, this was Franklin's excuse that he was under the impression that this was um, a minor incursion. Is, is that correct? Well, I think you got it right. This was Franklin's excuse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fra- Franklin, Franklin was bitter because of the removal of McClellan. Uh, he was not going to do one whit more than he had to do. And when this ambiguous order from Burnside came down there, he chose to interpret it in a way that uh, meant he didn't have to do anything, basically.
1: So th- the real goat is Franklin. I think so. Not, not Burnside.
2: Well, Burnside, of course, was, 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 not, you know, was not exactly on top of things either. But, <laughs> but I, I do think that, and I think Lincoln came to this conclusion, too, that that uh, Burnside was very badly served by Franklin yeah. in this battle.
3: Well, and to, to talk about? What happens later? Uh, and what happens later is Burnside's fired, and who does Lincoln appoint? But Hooker, and Hooker had been one of the people that had been like Franklin, been on um, you know figuring out some way that he could get the uh, he could get this command. And you remember the famous letter Lincoln said to, uh, sent. Uh, to Hooker, uh, basically saying, look, I'm giving you this command not because of what, despite what you've said, despite what you've done, I'm still giving you the command, but I expect you to...
1: Beware of rashness. Yes,
3: mm-hmm. and, and Hooker's responsible for why he's like a father talking to his Yes, he loved to
1: Kept the letter at his, in his at his at breast pocket. For the yes, season. that's right. Please. Yes. <laughs> yes.
4: Good evening. I'm Matt Rakoff, and I'm a museum member. Um, you obviously talked about Uh, the hellacious disaster both uh, militarily and politically politically for the Union uh, following Fredericksburg. Can you talk a little bit about, on the other side, um, where the spirits were in the sentiment uh, from the Confederate? Because if you think about it, those few short months leading up to Vicksburg and Gettysburg probably were the the high point, if you will, of uh, the Confederate.
1: Yeah, good question. Response on the Confederates—that must have been exultation.
2: Well, it was exultation in the in the public opinion. Lee was actually quite disappointed uh, because uh, the, he, this was entirely a defensive battle. Lincoln's preference was—I mean, Lee's preference was for the offensive. Uh, a, a, back to the artillery question. A day, uh, two days after uh, Fredericksburg, after the battle itself. Lee and Jackson consulted together about whether it might be possible to launch a counterattack.
3: Yeah, right. Uh,
2: Jackson sent some troops out be, from behind this tree line. The Union artillery on the, uh, the heights opposite the river, Stafford Heights, as we uh let loose against those, you know, those handful of troops that Jackson sent out from the tree line. And he said, "No way can no we way. cross this plain. It's almost a mile between the 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 hills." And the river there against that concentration of artillery you see along the uh, other right. side of the river up there. Right. Yeah. So Lee was very disappointed that the, that the Union Army got away without further damage. Yeah. Uh, but that, that was Lee. He always expressed disappointment when they got away, well, uh, as after Chancellorsville. For and there example. was some
3: criticism of Lee, too. I mean, he, t- he did take some, some criticism for not. For not doing something here at his chance, following up the fam- following up, yeah, of, and, of but, union
1: victories, nobody follows up.
3: No, yeah, that's.
1: so. We have two more questions. So, I'm glad we'll get them both in.
3: Al Hurley, a member, uh, has privileged to have had Miss
1: Professor McPherson's course at Princeton. So thank you for that. Um, the uh, question I have is, what did Hackett dis- uh, define as his job?
2: Halleck Halleck. 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 What did he? What was the question? Well, well,
1: Halleck, well, you said that Halleck thought he should not get involved in what Burnside was doing okay. in terms of his plans.
4: Uh, he, when he was asked, he didn't talk. We refused to respond to it. So, what? What exactly did he define as his job as the commander of the army?
3: Well, ba- yeah. Basically, what it what it came down to is again. Lincoln said, "Help me. I brought you here because you're the military expert. I'm not. Right. So what?" What should we do here? I want you to talk to Halleck, look at his plans, and then tell us. Talk to Burnside. Talk, talk to, to Burnside, Burnside right. And, and, and tell us what should be done. Is this plan going to work, or is there a better right. plan? I, I understand.
2: I think his question is, how did Halleck define his job?
3: job. Oh, Halleck defined his job as an advisor. His job was...
1: <laughs> so, right, an advisor a, on what?
3: Advisor. <laughs> he, was, he was an advisor to the president, though you're, I know what you're getting at. He does not want to give advice in this particular instance. And this is, this is one of the issues that, that I find with, uh, uh, with Halleck, is that here's a guy who's extremely successful before the Civil, one of the wealthiest guys in the United States. Right. But something happens, and we could get onto a whole psychological uh, psycho history thing. But he just cannot deal. He, can't, he couldn't deal with McClellan. He can't deal with Lincoln, really, although he's ready to quit. I think he's, he's pretty much finished by the time he gets to Washington. Okay. Uh,
2: just, just a couple of uh, additions to that. I think he saw himself as an administrator. Admin- yeah, that's a better word. Yeah. Uh, and not as a decider. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Lincoln saw that uh, pretty quickly, especially after this This. (laughs) business. And later on, Lincoln tells uh, John Hay that Halleck is uh, a first-rate clerk.
3: (laughs) But you remember somebody also asked Lincoln, well, why do you stick with him? He said, well, Halleck needs a friend. He doesn't have any other (laughs) services. And he was was an... I have to admit, uh, Halleck was not a nice fellow. He had a very abrasive personality. So in addition to what you're talking about, he, he was constantly <laughs> knocking other people down, too. I think
1: Lincoln had a soft spot for him because he read his book when he came <laughs> well, to Washington. Well, that's right, yeah. Read his book on military theory, learned Halleckian theories of sure. war. Is that a word? Do he we was, use Halleckian? But, was, yeah. But he, you know what, Link, what Halleck did for Lincoln, I think? Because you're looking at it from one side. Halleck was a funnel. Lincoln was relieved of a lot of correspondence yeah. and questions and requests for his opinion. Everything went through Halleck, even Grant went through Halleck, sure. right? So it's, he's uh, siphons a lot of things off until Lincoln begins to become act, an active well, correspondent with, with Grant.
3: Halleck is the happiest he is during the war when Grant takes over, because now what he can do, he doesn't have to say, hey, General, you're messing up here, he can say, hey, General, the president really is unhappy with you so you better straighten yourself out so it it he was he was absolutely happy just sitting sit in his own baths that's right about
1: which more privately if you want to come out to the <laughs> Alex okay well, our final question
4: <clears throat> yeah i was wondering um, tell us tell us your name Nathan Knight uh, okay i was wondering in light of southern victories like this what role might any of you know or may any of you know that Northern intrigue played in preventing countries like France or England from coming to aid the Southern cause, particularly Northern intrigue, if you know anything about the role that might have played.
2: Well, they, uh, France and England had been on the verge of uh, recognizing the Confederacy and trying to broker a peace between Union and Confederacy uh, on the basis of Confederate independence on the eve of the of Lee's invasion of Maryland that led to the Battle of Antietam, uh, and the British backed off after that. And once Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, there was really no chance that the British would come to the Confederacy's aid. The French still wanted to, and in fact, they, the French undertook an initiative in January 1863 after the Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh, to try to broker some kind of a peace, but uh, Secretary of State Seward uh, brushed them off and said, "No way." Uh, so uh, w- there was a lot going on on the diplomatic front, and,
4: also and was the, the defeat
2: at Fredericksburg uh, did encourage the French to try try again, but it it didn't r- accomplish anything.
4: Was was Emperor um, Louis Napoleon? What was his feeling towards it? Was he sympathetic towards the South? Yes, he was. He was. Yeah. 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 So okay.
1: You know, it's interesting, had Fredericksburg occurred before Antietam, his, history would have been
4: yeah. quite... or The British crazy.
2: and French would have intervened then, no question about sure, it. Yeah. They were on the verge of doing yeah. so.
3: Yes.
1: Well, Lincoln may have said that um, the news from Fredericksburg put him in hell, but uh, one of the most bizarre follow-up aspects of the war is that, of the battle, is that an aurora borealis illuminated the yes. night sky... Um, This may sound corny, but I want to thank you for illuminating a (laughs) neglected valley. Thank you.